0: Take your Bibles this morning. We're wrapping up our series in Second Thessalonians, and uh, it's been a great series. And uh, this morning we kind of come to the conclusion of that. If you're newer visiting uh, before Easter, we covered First Thessalonians, and then after Easter we went into Second, and it's it's been a, a great study. We're starting in chapter three. We're looking at verses sixteen to eighteen. Uh, not long, but as you'll find out this morning, carries quite a punch. Let's read it together. It says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. As I said, I'm I'm grateful for this series. I think it's been uh, really impactful as a series, and, and I'm grateful for how the Lord... Has led us in it and used it among us as we've gone through what many believe to be the first two books written in the New Testament. So, uh, pretty significant when you think about the first out of the shoot and what Paul's first thoughts were as he began ministry. In these last three verses of Paul's, it's really a benediction, uh, if you want. Paul leaves a, an important marker or anchor for the Thessalonian believers. Despite All they had been through and all they would continue to go through, Paul underscores the Lord of peace, would continue to grant them peace no matter what they would go through. And that is a great word for us this morning as well. The presence of the Lord is not just a euphemism. Uh, Scripture says God inhabits the praise of his people. And that's why churches across the globe spend so much time focused on music and worship, because there's something that happens uh, when we do that together. The Bible says we can experience the Lord's presence in a way we otherwise normally can't. And with the Lord's presence comes the Lord's peace. And we're going to see that this morning. Paul, moreover, is counting on Jesus' presence because he knows that he, Paul, will probably never see the Thessalonians again. He uh, is writing uh, to them from Corinth. And at this point, they are going to have to depend on the Holy Spirit to lead them through the life of faith. And uh, and he knows that's going to be a challenge and he knows it's going to be a growing point. How is this underlined? Why? Uh, Paul feels this significantly, this emotionally towards them. Look at the uh, second half there. It says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, we don't have an example of Paul's handwriting uh, present today, uh, but pretty much it's understood that Paul had some sort of really debilitating eye problem. Whether it was glaucoma or whatever it was, it was called his thorn in the flesh. He asked the Lord to get rid of it three different times. The Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you. Uh Thanks for the answer to prayer. And um, it was meant to keep Paul humble because of the surpassing visions that he had seen. Uh, Paul says he was caught up into the third heaven. And so when he was writing... Uh, in his, hand, his um, handwriting, it probably didn't look that good. And if you think of Paul, you know he was a scholar, right? He was a, a, a scholar, a, a Jewish scholar, and then now later a biblical scholar. And scholars don't appreciate that very well. They like to be understood. And so, if you have sloppy, crummy, awkward handwriting, it's a point of oh, you're an educated person, really. And uh, and so, but he uses it. Uh, to make a point that he wanted them to know his heart. He says, this is, look in that phrase up there, it says, this is my sign of genuineness. In other words, if you want to know how I'm being genuine in this, I took the time to write it out in my own handwriting. And that's really true today, right? To this day, if someone writes you a handwritten note, it means more than almost any other form of communication other than if someone goes out of their way to find you and verbally say something to you you get a card, you probably have special people who still drop you cards, right? It could be a mom or dad or maybe a grandparent. And you just know it's them by their handwriting, right? Or maybe, maybe it's uh, many of us here have grandchildren, right? Maybe a grandson or a granddaughter. And when that thing shows up in the mail, you know it's them. In our family, we always know when my mom uh, has sent us something because she's a sticker person. And so the thing is covered and sealed in stickers. If Fort Knox was guarded by stickers the way my mom's letters are guarded by stickers, they would never break in and get the gold. Trust me, it becomes a fine art of prying that thing open and you don't tear the letter. But we know every time, instantly, mom, right? And boom, everybody's excited. And and that's how uh, this is coming across here in this letter. He wanted to know his heart, and he wanted to know that he's leaving them instructions. And these instructions were not just good ideas or suggestions. He's saying, look, I know it's tough, and I know it hasn't been the easiest, but if you're going to make it, if you're going to keep going forward, you're going to have to do these things. And so he's, he's uh, leaving them really, they're more guidelines or commandments meant to impart spiritual life and health. Follow this and you will do well, is kind of the spirit Behind it. And he's saying to them, look, you know this is coming from me. Check out my handwriting. Nobody writes like this, right? But more than that, he's saying, hear my heart behind it. Follow through with what I taught you. Go back and remember our times together. So let's go back. We're going to go back to the beginning here. Oh, come on. It's not forwarding. Can you move the slide forward? It's not. There we go. Thanks. Okay. It says now, may the Lord of peace. We're going to focus on this concept of peace this morning. Now, may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and in every way. That's a, that's an amazing phrasing right there. The Lord of peace. This Lord of peace idea is a rephrasing itself of a title that uh, the Jews were very familiar with. That we're even very familiar with. We you find it in Isaiah. I've been reading through the Bible and. Many of you are following along with me and and I'm in Isaiah right now and just read this a little while back. But it says God will carry a number of monikers or banners that kind of are symbolic of who he is and they represent the type of person he is. And it says when the Messiah will come, he will be called Wonderful Counselor. What's the second one? Prince of Peace. In other words, it's just not an idea. It's actually who he is. That when God comes into our life, peace comes into our life. Many of us, if we did not know the Lord and lived our life into our adulthood and then came to know him, know the impact of that statement. The Prince of Peace brought me peace and gave me peace in my life. That's this uh, title here Paul is talking about, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. Uh, we've encountered this title and idea of peace in Thessalonians before. If you go back to First Thessalonians, if you kind of... Just keep your finger there and go back a couple pages. Go back to the close of First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. There we go. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That idea there that God's sanctifying process, that it would affect all of our spirit, all of our soul, all of our body, that we would be kept blameless is done by the God of peace. The Holy Spirit is known as the spirit of peace or the spirit of truth. And so they're consistent in how they operate together. So when the Holy Spirit comes and gives us peace, then we have peace within ourselves and also peace among us. It's an amazing concept and idea. And to get that off this morning, what I'd like to do is pause, now that you're tracking with this, and would you just go into a spirit of prayer and close your eyes and get by in your own place for a second? I don't know your week and I don't know your circumstances. I don't know all of that you've run into or what you haven't run into. Can I ask two questions this morning while you're in the quiet of your own thoughts, that place where nobody else gets to? Can I ask, do you have peace this morning? And maybe another way to ask it, are you at peace with God this morning? God of all comfort and God of all peace, may you wash and cleanse. And soften our hearts this morning to be able to respond to your spirit and experience your peace. We admit to you that we are a stressful and striving people who often in our, in our anxiety and, and lack of faith have forfeited your peace. We know your peace is a great gift and a great possession in times of trouble and affliction and persecution. We also know that your peace passes understanding that many have often known and have often commented and experienced a a strange and wonderful calm come over them in spite of their circumstances. And we realize that someone is praying over us or for us. Be our presence. Be our peace this morning, O Prince of Peace. May we rest in your spirit. May we celebrate your peace, for you yourself are our peace, and there is no other in which it can be found. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. There are in the Bible 348 uses of the word peace. I know because I read them all this week. All right. I was going down them, and I was telling Margaret, okay, up to 48. All right. Up to 76. You know, and I was tracking through. Now, most of them, a lot of them are. Uh, peace be with you, right? that kind of thing. And so those you can go through pretty quickly. but within those uh, statements uh, left in scripture about peace are some of the more powerful and profound uh, ideas that are part of the core of the Christian life and what it actually means to be Christian and what it actually means uh, to to know the God of peace. and uh, we're going to look at those this morning, so I went through them, and uh, we are to, first it says, live in peace, First Corinthians fourteen thirty-three. The idea there is that because Christ is in our life, we should live in peace. And we've talked many times about the, uh, the danger of toxic anger, even if it's internal, even if it's um, hidden from other people, the, the danger of what internal anger does to us and how it robs us of our peace. And so we are to live in peace. We are to, in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule our hearts. Notice that this idea here is one of a master, that the peace that comes from God is to master us or control us uh, and have rule over our hearts. Why? Because of the first point. Often my anger flares up and I'm not in peace and I have to resubmit myself to the authority of Christ, because only when I do that am I able to overcome the raging flames of my anger or my lust or my bitterness or all the different things that can come upon me so suddenly. And so the peace of Christ is to rule our hearts. In other words, to be a benevolent taskmaster to point us in the right direction towards Jesus. We are to be at peace among ourselves. That's talking about not just individually, but also within a fellowship. Uh, A peace within a fellowship is a huge gift. Often I will talk about tone and the tone of a church. That's so important. But often what you're looking for has anything disrupted the peace that we have as a fellowship among us. And you try to catch the hot spots quickly so that you can put that fire out fast because if left to themselves, that kind of toxic reaction... Uh, can rupture a church into pieces. Many of you have been in places where that has actually happened. And it's a grievous uh, thing to go through when you see that happen to a body and the peace is lost. We are to pursue peace. The idea here is that it's actively engaged. In other words, I'm going after it. I'm looking for it. I seek it out. Uh, I am it's something that I hold in high value and go after and so I'm I'm pursuing peace that would be within my relationship with God within my marriage that would be within my family and within my church or community and then in 2nd Peter 3 4 we are to be found at peace Um, often uh, governments are trying to seek peace right to be negotiate peace. If you've watched the news lately, all kinds of heck is going on behind the scenes between us and Russia and China and all these flybys, and there's a a political gamemanship going on that's incredibly dangerous, and uh, it's heating up again. And in this here, we are to strive for peace. Governments strive for peace. Often, they don't find it. But we are to hold peace at a high level. It's something of a high value Uh, among us. And then James 3.18 says, if we do all this, we will reap a harvest of peace, right? There's a fruit to it. There's something good that comes out of it. Now, in laying these out, when we look at these, what we realize is that uh, that peace can be shattered, that peace can be stolen. What are some things that steal or rob our peace? And so I went through and uh, made a list here There we go. Peace can be lost by, survey says, sin. Right? No rocket science here. Right? Sin. If you take a basic definition of sin, sin is separation from God. In other words, if I choose to separate from God, then I forfeit His peace. Because why? He is the God of peace. So that's why it's such a big deal during the week. Those little battles we fight, you know, those places in your mind where you're tempted to um, grab something that you know God has told you no, know, and you you sit between there going, well, what's the big deal? You know, I'll just grab this, take this detour, and then I'll come right back and I'll be right with God and nothing will be lost, right? And nobody will know I've done it. The idea that, hey, it can't be sin because I didn't hurt anybody. There is no such thing in the universe as private sin. Underline that, underscore it. It does not exist. It's a fallacy. What goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas is the biggest crock of public marketing that has ever been fostered on the American public. Whatever happens in Vegas ripples across entire communities and families. It's a joke, right? And so but that's true of us, too. Let's not jump on Vegas's throat too hard. That's true of us. There's no such thing as private sin. And here's how you know. When you take that little detour and you think, oh, ha-ha, and I'll come right back, and then you feel gutted, right? And what's gone? Your sense of peace. Your sense of contentment is robbed. Why? Because there's been this separation from God. You actively chose it. And so immediately you lose your peace, and then things like anxiety and worry and that sort of stuff sets in because you know you can't do it, because it's hard to pray when you've chosen sin instead of peace, right? And so sin is, is devastated. The wages of sin is death. The death of what? Death of peace, right? It just goes right out the window, and that's a bad trade. By the way, note, interesting note, if you go to the Old Testament um, and, and look this up, the way they had to resolve in the Old Testament was if you sinned and wanted to course correct and repent and then get in right relationship with God again, you went to the priest and you offered a peace offering. Right? Now go back and look at those verses and you realize God was trying to give them a way to be back in peace with him. That makes a whole lot more sense and why it was so involved because it cleansed the conscience. Second thing, it's close to sin, but it's different than sin, so I separated it out. Iniquity, right? Um, We don't, most of the time, I use this word in marriage counseling, and most people have no clue what iniquity means. So let me give you a good American definition of iniquity. Here's what it means in English if you have a spirit of iniquity. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I don't care who tells me I can't. I don't care if my mom and dad tell me I can't. I don't care if my teacher tells me I can't. I don't care if my boss tells me I can't. I don't care if my pastor tells me I can't. I don't give a rip if God himself tells me I can't. I'm going to do it anyways. It's this bent to go my own way. Remember in the Old Testament when God, uh, his challenge to Israel is that you are a stiff necked and stubborn people. And it really irks God, you can tell. He's like, how long do I have to put up with you? Why? Because they were just stubborn. We'd call it mule-headed, right? You couldn't turn them. And he's saying this this attitude, this, uh, my, I'm going to go my own way. I, I do not want to listen to you, uh, is a serious spirit. In Isaiah, I'm in Isaiah right now reading through uh, for the year, and so I'm pulling a lot of Isaiah quotes. But it says, uh, God is talking about giving them peace again. It says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or is his ear dull that it cannot hear. In other words, there's nothing wrong with God. He's totally functional and fine, and he's alive then. They were in terrible circumstances, uh, and he said there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with him then. There's nothing wrong with him now. It says, what's the problem? It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And if you tie in the challenge to pray and repent at the same time while well, I'm trying to get away with what I want to do, makes it really difficult. Husbands, wives, right? If you're sinning in your heart, kind of hard to pray at night. Okay, dear, good night. Why? I don't want you to see my heart. I'm hanging on to some things. and But spouses, don't we know, right? There's peace gone. All of a sudden, something's wrong. Marriage, we can't put our finger on it, but something's off because uh, we start going our own way. Tied to this really closely is this one, pride. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's found in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter 5. I have taught this here at this church as one of the universal principles found in Scripture. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. The sin, what we're talking about here, is the sin of a hard heart. Have you ever had the Lord talking to you and you knew and you're just digging in and you just won't? It's not that you can't, you won't. I have people all the time in my office say, I can't. I'm going, that's a lie. What you're saying is I won't. Oh. Well. Because we don't like casting ourselves in that light. We don't like seeing ourselves that way. But the the hard heart and, and penitent heart is a big issue. As quoted by the famous theologian, Indiana Jones, only the penitent man shall pass. Right? And what's a penitent man? The person that's willing to bow the knee. Now that's a funny quote, but Jesus tells this story in Matthew 24 that's not so funny. And it captures this idea of a hard heart. Who then is the faithful and wise servant who his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But, always watch where the transition points are in Scripture. When it says but or therefore, watch the shift. But if that wicked servant says to himself, now, wait a minute, we just had a shift here. He was a good servant, he's going to be blessed. But if he's a wicked servant, what makes him wicked? It's this hardness of heart. If that wicked servant says, My master is delayed. Huh. He's not coming back. Taking a long time. Matter of fact, I don't even think he's watching anymore. So it really doesn't matter how I handle this. So I'm just going to do this the way I want to do it. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and he begins to beat his fellow servants. And eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. You ever had your parents show up when you didn't expect him? Whoops. When he does not expect him or in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a very pleasant picture. Now notice the phrase in the mindset, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants. What are we talking about here? We're talking about being hard-hearted. We're talking about being hard-hearted towards God and almost invariably because relationships work, whether you're doing them this way or this way, you tend to operate relationally consistent. So if you have a hard heart towards God, you're going to tend to have a hard heart towards other fellow people. And you will treat them consistently with the condition of your heart. Now you may do this and even think in your own mind, that you're getting away with it. But when we do this, when we operate out of a hard heart, we are forfeiting God's peace and we will be haunted. If you've ever watched somebody um, who, in counseling, this happens all the time, but I'm sure you've experienced as well, where you're trying to give them courage. They go, oh, it's not working. God's not listening to me and and, uh, I, I just don't feel like I, the Lord cares about me more. and you go, well look, here's some assurances and you walk through the scripture, well yeah that's not, that just doesn't work for me because my circumstances are exceptional and yada 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 and you go on to this what you realize after a point of time is um, there's something back here they're not telling you they do not want to throw that piece on the table because if they throw that piece on the table, it alters everything and so no matter how you try and encourage them, you can't, and What gets hard is after a while they just get this haunted look on them because they know they don't have peace and they know they forfeited it, but they are not willing to cough that peace up. I've learned to ask the question. This will reduce my counseling load. Is there anything you haven't told me? When I start running and I go, stop for a second. Okay, let's pause. Pause. Is there anything you haven't told me? So now you know, don't come to my office. I'll ask that question. We're good. I'll have free time with my wife and children. It's awesome. But what you sense in a person like that is the absolute vacuum of peace. They have everything else but peace. And it's a a really gutting thing. What kind of stuff Are we talking about It's this kind of stuff. We don't like to talk about it, but it's among us. Do you hit your family? Either with your fists or your mouth or both? You do that, you're forfeiting the peace of the Lord. Do you manipulate or exasperate those closest to you because of your over-excessive need for control? You just make everybody fit in your box because it's your box and your box is right and nobody else's box is right. And unless they're your box, you ever, you, you make a wonderful, you make a lousy Jesus. Boy, and when you try to do that, you forfeit peace right out the window. Are you hard on the people around you? Demanding, exacting. Does your fear of what might happen rob those around you of their honor and opportunities because you can't or won't trust them? Hard to have peace when that's happening. You can do all of the above, and you can even call yourself Christian. But as I said before, you forfeit God's peace. And going back to the passage, you know, make whatever you want of that passage. You know, and then we get into the whole: was that person saved? Is that person thrown into hell? Or like, I leave it at for whatever it is. But mark this, when you're chopped into pieces, when you're put with hypocrites and you are put in a place like that, that is not a peaceful place. Don't think you're going to have peace if you're separated from God in a place like that because it's anything but having peace. How about this one? This is a little more common. Anxiety and worry. Isaiah 26.3 says, He keeps in him in perfect peace, him whose mind is stayed on him. The idea there is Jesus must be the target and you have to keep him focused. And you never realize how hard that is till you try to do that. Because then all the things that are really warring against you that just seem like little things become roaring lions when you try to keep your focus on him. But it says this, what? The person who's able to keep his eyes on Jesus is kept in perfect peace. And we know this from the stories of history throughout the church of the martyrs. If you read about the martyrs, one of the things that's absolutely astonishing from uh, the early Christians who were thrown to the lions in the Colosseum to the martyrs in the uh, mid-centuries there uh, to even the modern day. One of the things, even in present day, is the amazing sense of peace those people have in going to their death because they are able to keep their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. And therefore, when we let anxiety and worry rob us, and Jesus says, you know, it's kind of a silly thing. You can't make one hair on your head white or gray anyways. What are you worrying about? In my case, that's literally true. But we worry about everything as Americans, from what color our toenails are, to our hair, to our cars we drive, to the homes we live in, to what we do have, to what we don't have. Everything's a competition, and we're always losing. You ever notice how that robs peace? Get off the train, people. Get back to Jesus. Let Him be your peace again. Anxiety and worry. He keeps in perfect peace, Him whose mind is stayed on. Why? Because He trusts in Him. It's a trust issue. Here's a, a one many of us have battled with bitterness. You ever notice how bitterness will rob your peace? Because what we say in bitterness... That person did dirt to me, and if God smokes them, then I will have peace. And you notice God doesn't seem to be too big of a hurry to smoke them. And that makes you even more bitter. Because now you're not only bitter at the person, you're bitter at God. And you sit in a state of bitterness, and you churn, and you churn, and churn. Let me ask you, how much peace do you have when you do that? L- really? That's called fat, Plastic Christian. <laughs> Right. We're like nuts on the inside. What is it? Bitterness hooks us in a terrible way. Hebrews twelve fourteen says this strive for peace with everyone. This is where the strive for peace quote came from. But now look at the context it's in strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And the grace of God brings peace. And that no road of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by many and by it, many become defiled. How do we become defiled? Because there's no peace in our spirit, there's no peace in our mind. Because of that, there's no peace in our marriage. Because of that, there's no peace in our home. Because of that, there's no peace in our children. It just rolls on and on and on, because we're bitter. Now, this point is connected to the next point, so keep your mind on this one. We'll go to the next one, but you know the correlation. Lack of forgiveness, right? Bitterness is tied to a lack of forgiveness. If uh, we do the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And as I learned it, Forgive us our trespasses. I'm a person who has trespassed, so I understand what that means. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Right? That's that phrase in there. And we, we kind of, you know, uh, leave it at that and we kind of stop there. But that isn't the end. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, there's two verses that are really significant. It says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. I'm old enough now, I've learned. You know, Lord, if you wash my stuff under the bridge, I let go of others too. Because I realize there's no way to keep a of it. And something else we have to put on the table that I think is important, because sometimes we think if I forgive that person, they're getting off scot-free. No, if you forgive them, you're getting off scot-free. Because the person who's held in bondage when you don't forgive and you wallow in bitterness is you. Do you really think that person who sinned against you is spending 24-7 thinking about how they offended you? Oh my goodness, they must be in a terrible state. I, I should do something about it. That is not what they're thinking. They may be thinking a lot of things. Ha, 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 I got away with it. Ha, ha, ha. Who cares? They're not thinking about you. The person held hostage is you. And so when God asks you to forgive them, he's asking you to forgive them so that you can be set free, not so they can be set free. When God asks you to forgive, that does not mean you have to Trust. There's a big difference between I forgive you versus trust is reestablished. Trust is earned. Forgiveness is given. And a lot of times, what we say is if I forgive them, I have to trust them again. No. Trust will have to be rebuilt. But if I don't forgive, then I am held hostage. This is, uh, now we know that, but often we won't act on that. God says, look. Let me help you with this. Let me clear the plate. You, if we do this, you'll have peace. And we go, no, your way is not right, God. Israel did this. Uh, God was coming. He said, I'm going to wipe out your country. And what you need to do is turn back to me. And they said, ah, we're not turning back to you. What good will that do? Isaiah 30 says this. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness, and you could put the word peace there. In quietness... And trust is your strength. But then it adds this, but you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. God says, come back. Stop. Come back to me. Get back to a place of peace. And if there's something you've got to let go this morning, then you need to let that go because the person getting messed up is you, not them. Let it go. Trust Him. He can make it. Right. Your bitterness isn't fixing anything and it's staining the people around you. There are more, but I I think you get the point. If we don't reconcile with God and stay in right relationship with Him, then we forfeit His peace. Have you gotten that point yet this morning? Now why is that important? Why should we do that? Because God is the God of all peace. That's not just a moniker. That is who He is. When God comes into our lives, He brings peace. See, if you don't recognize these, the gospel is what? The good news of peace. God reconciling both Gentile and Jew and anyone, all who call on His name will be saved. He wants to come and bring peace to those who are far away and to those who are near. That means on a Sunday morning, He wants to bring peace to you, and all the people that should be in the seats that aren't, He wants to bring peace to them. He, the gospel is the good news of peace. Romans 8, 6 says this, The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. What's wrong with being on the internet 24-7? Your mind is set on everything but Jesus. A distraction is a distraction is a distraction. It doesn't matter if it's a good distraction. If you never set your mind on Christ, then you're going to lack peace. You can probably equate your level to peace to the level of the amount of time you spend in the Word and prayer. And if you're not experiencing peace, then don't be hard-hearted and say, well, I, I'm busy. I can't, you can't expect me to be in there and you don't expect me to pray with my wife, do you? Yes. Yes, I do. Anybody heard that message here? Why do you think we like... Do you you think if husbands and wives pray together, it would affect the peace, not only of our church, but how about the, the peace of our community? It would be huge. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, says 1 Corinthians 14, 13. Uh, this happens all the time. You ever had to make a decision, business decision, car decision, a house decision, school, anything like that? And what do people always say? You know, we just don't have peace about it. Right? You ever heard that phrase before? We just don't have peace about it. Pam and I just did this. Uh, we, we were trying to figure out how to buy a car for a Kinsey, and we found one that we were sort of interested in, and it looked like a great deal and probably still is a great deal. But the problem is her and I just couldn't land on it together. We just couldn't... It's like, oh, you hate to pass up a good deal, but we've learned if the two of us don't have peace about it, don't do it. And so we didn't do it. And we have peace about the fact that we're united on that. Where we would not have peace if we'd have just gone ahead and done it. Right? That is important. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Then it says this, let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts we should have Christ's presence ruling us and one of the core benefits of that is we will have peace. Jesus says this in John 16 to illustrate because we have a, an American mind frame to this. I want to talk about it for a second. Uh, oops, I went forward. There we go. Oh my goodness. I'm... There it is. Ha, ah, Got it. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Stop for a second. Everything Jesus has done for the last three years is about to go poof, right? The guys that he were his disciples that he spent three years with, he says, you are about to go poof in the wilderness. You're going to scatter like sheep. None of you will be around. Judas is going to cold-bloodedly betray him. Peter, his top gun, his number one guy, is going to adamantly, with curses and swearing, admit he doesn't know him. So that's all just going flying out the window. If that was your team, and you'd spent that much time investing in them, and you were there, is that how you'd react? Man, I'd be flipping out, right? I'd be on those guys, like white on rice, letting them know what a bunch of ditwads they really are. That's a plight word I can use, okay? I'd be using other words. Since I wasn't functioning in the Spirit, I'd probably be using those words, right? I would be all over them. Is that what Jesus does? He says, no. He says this, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And because the Father is with them, what? He has peace. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In other words, later on, you're going to remember what I said, you're going to remember what I talked to you. And when you come back to those things I taught you, you're going to have peace again. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let me ask you a question this morning. Does it look like in any way, shape, or form Jesus has overcome the world? Does it even look like he has any effect in the world? Does it even look like he's around? Do you even hear his name? No. Right? Our world is working overtime to convince us that there is no presence and therefore there is no priest. You are all a bunch of muddle-headed dimwits who have bought into myths and fairy tales, kind of pixie dust sort of stuff, and you've been duped and you need to get retrained in your brain because you aren't thinking right. This piece from Jesus' idea is laughed at. But God is at work. God's at work in powerful ways, and He's around, and those who focus on Him find His peace. Boy, hello. Now, here's the problem. We make a huge assumption in America that uh, having God's peace means I won't go through any difficult, hardship, uh, affliction, or persecution in this life. That if God gives me everything I want and everything goes the way I want, then I'll have peace. That's how we pray. That's the way we think. When scripturally, biblically, it's exactly the opposite. When everything is going not the way you want it to go, that's when we will experience God's peace. Notice Jesus gave this encouragement. When when did he give this encouragement that we see here? That was right before the what? The cross. Was the cross a place of peace? No, the person on it was the place of peace. The instrument itself wasn't. And Paul, likewise, to underscore it, gave this encouragement and promise of Jesus' peace precisely because they were going through pain and affliction, not because they wouldn't experience it. He's saying, as you go through this, remember God's peace. His presence will be with you. It will guide you. So Second Thessalonians 3.16, Paul says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. In every way the Lord be with you all. Another one that reflects this really well is Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Notice that phrase, peace in believing. Where does it come? When you put your faith, believing means trust. I get in the wheelbarrow. I get on the wire. I let him take me across. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Notice if you have hope, you tend to have peace. But if hope goes out the window, what happens to your peace? Right? As you think about that, as you wrestle with that today, know that this is as old as the Christian life itself. The early saints fought with it. We fight with it. But the hallmark of God's people, especially under pressure, especially under difficulty, especially under persecution, is that they are people of peace. And we are people of peace not because of us, but because of the presence of the One who saves us is so strong that we can be at peace in the midst of the storm. Let's pray. Father, as we've walked about this, I don't know all the circumstances this week and I don't know what state people walked in. I don't know what they were wrestling with. I don't know what afflictions or troubles have uh, affected their soul or their walk this week. I don't know, Lord... Um, who's been having a hard time softening. I don't know who's had a hard time locking on. But as we pray, Lord, again, I would pray for your peace to wash us, to soften us, that we would respond well to you as you try to draw close to us. And Lord, as you instructed Moses in the book of Numbers, a book that most people even wonder why it's in the Bible, some of the most profound Lessons come from there. And you taught Moses how to pray for your people. And it reads like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. May it be so, Lord Jesus.